Hi everyone, and welcome to the Business of Customer Love podcast. I'm your host, Simeon Atkins, Senior Product Marketing Manager at Mention Me. Growing your brand through customer love might seem like an idea that belongs in the company cafe rather than the boardroom. But identifying, growing, and activating a base of loyal fans is serious business. And the results of harnessing brand advocacy can be truly transformational for both your company and your customers. We gather experts from across the space to shine a light on how you can unleash a virtuous cycle of sustainable, organic growth where your best customers keep coming back and bringing their friends too. So let's get into today's episode. So I'm thrilled to be joined today by Fred Reichow, Bain Fellow and creator of the Net Promoter Score. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. So we're here today to talk about how brands can start to rebalance their marketing efforts by delivering more earned growth alongside their paid channels. Before we dive in, do you want to give a quick introduction to our listeners? Well, an uh, intro about me would be I've been working on this subject of customer loyalty and employee loyalty for almost 40 years and have continued to try and evolve the frameworks and, and systems that help leaders uh, make progress on those dimensions. Initially, we just looked at retention rates and, and the economics around those. That's evolved over time to include net promoter feedback, which, uh, although it has the weaknesses of a survey, has the advantages of a real-time quick uh, insight into the health of a relationship and its likely direction. It's forward-focused. You know, How likely would you recommend is looking in the future. And and most recently, I've seen the need to evolve even further into an accountability metric that will let leaders um, not just assign responsibility, but also uh, have the confidence to know whether they're making wise choices. Um, you know, I think they default to accounting numbers today, but accounting, of course, doesn't really probe into the most fundamental driver of business prosperity, the thing I call the uh, the earned growth uh, flywheel, which is very simply customers coming back for more and bringing their friends. That, that simple idea is the core of loyalty. We don't have a measure or haven't historically had a metric that is reportable and, and can link to people's uh, bonuses or be something a board of directors demands uh, to understand the health of the business. Um, so, so that's where we are today is I'm trying to get earned growth to be more deeply understood and accepted as a, uh, as the North star for businesses. Excellent. I'm really excited to get into that with you a bit later as well. Um, now it's traditional on the show to get things kicked off. I'd love for you to share a time recently where as a consumer, you've experienced customer love firsthand and really what kind of impact that had on you as a consumer as well. Well, when I have someone go above and beyond and surprise me, um, it not only reinforces my decision to keep doing business with them and, and expand my purchases and, and try new product lines because I trust that kind of an organization, I certainly tell my friends. And, and those stories create the brand reputation much more powerfully than advertising or the traditional marketing gimmicks that that businesses have relied on uh, too much, I think. So what's a good example of a recent one? You know, Apple has done it regularly. Um, I'm a 
classical music fan um, and uh, Apple Music never really <clears throat> had very good coverage there. Um, so I use Spotify and, and most recently they, Apple not only upgraded to a very, very interesting classical musical option, but <clears throat> made it even better with, with fresh new things that, that Spotify wasn't offering. So <clears throat> I talked to my classical music friends about that. And, and of course, that's a lot cheaper than advertising. I'm sure many other classical music fans will be as pleased as you are with those updates from Apple. Now, we're on a podcast called The Business of Customer Love. And I think this idea of loving your customers is something that people can interpret in lots of different ways. Now, there's probably no one more qualified to answer the question of what customer love really is about than you. So I'd love to start there. What in your eyes is customer love really all about? I think customer love in a business setting is that that condition when when one side of the relationship gets most of its happiness and prosperity out of uh, generating happiness in the other. It's it's a uh, in some ways it seems selfless, but it's not because because good people want relationships to come into balance. So so when you take the lead in caring for your customer and watching out for their well-being, putting those interests ahead of your own short-term selfish needs, that's love. And and customers, when they feel that love, they come back for more and they tell their friends. And, and that's why love makes enormous sense in a business setting. It certainly does. And I love this idea of, um, you, you've mentioned it before, the golden rule, treating others as you'd like to be treated. I think that's a, a really nice way of, um, of thinking about it. Could you expand maybe on that a little bit more, this idea of the golden rule? Yeah, when I, uh, I interviewed some of the companies that I admired the most, um, including the Four Seasons Hotel chain, Izzy Sharp, the founder, uh, someone I've been writing about for decades, because I, it's, it has such, well, it high, high net promoter score, high retention rates, just fin financially very impressive success. But they've used the same formula in almost every culture around the world that I can, they're in, they're in Mexico, they're in Bali, they're in Africa, uh, Middle East, Boston. And I asked Izzy, how is it that one company, one brand can succeed so impressively in so many different cultures? And he said, well, Fred, there's really one core uh, pillar to our, our brand, and that is a uh, golden rule. And what we find is it is operational in every human society we find the uh, that, that tendency when you treat people well, they tend to treat you well in return. But you take the first step. And so the golden rule, it's a religious principle, book of Matthew, love thy neighbor as thyself. But it's much more. It's its a core principle for building healthy relationships. Treating others the way you'd want a loved one treated is my favorite way of, uh, of stating it. So you can always picture your youngster or your grandchild or your dear old mother. And what's the kind of treatment that you feel would make you proud to, to have them receive. And that's a high standard. But boy, when you reach it, that's when people are not only loyal in terms of repeat, and but they, they tell their friends and it, it builds your reputation. And reputation is everything. And I love this idea you just said there about taking pride and feeling proud in those experiences that you're offering customers. I think that's that's really at the heart of it as well. Now, 
that we know that brands are still spending on average around 64% of their marketing budget on acquiring customers through channels like Google, Facebook and Amazon. Now, while these channels are obviously not going anywhere, I'd be interested to know what problems you've seen companies run into when they try to buy their way to the top as opposed to earning it, which obviously we'll come into in a little bit more detail later. In those businesses where we separate bought growth, which are the advertising, special marketing deals, promotional tactics, the the 64% of marketing spend that you referred to, those customers have a lower lifetime value than the customers that come in that are earned um, through referral or or great reputation. Um, And it's far greater difference than than most companies are aware of because the company that's come in on referral Obviously, you don't need the advertising expenditure or the marketing promotion, that that expense. But there's a positive selection going on where people who are coming in that way have more realistic expectations. They have friends who recommended them, who will set things right and sometimes educate and train them. Um, and and so when you look at the, the longevity of a referred customer, it can be far, far longer, uh, you know, twice, three times as many years as a bot customer, and they buy more stuff, their loan losses, and bad credits are, are superior, are, are more favorable. And you add it all up, you find out referred customers can be three to 10 times more profitable than a bot customer. In fact, in mature industries, what I'm finding is bot customers actually are net present value negative. The CAC is bigger than the lifetime value. Um, but because businesses have cut themselves in silos. It's hard for them to track the economics. They look at the marketing department and the sales guys. Okay, I'm going to evaluate you on how many new customers you can come in on with a certain budget. And you're optimizing cost per new customer. And they have no idea which of those customers are turning into wonderful, profitable promoters and which ones are uh, detractors and are defecting within a year or two and telling all their friends how bad the business is. And and so you, you get this self-defeating loop going on in, in, I would say, most businesses today. And that feels like a great segue into the idea of earned growth, which is obviously something you go into length in your book, Winning on Purpose. I'd love you to go into this in a little bit more detail and the impact that you've seen earned growth have on businesses who have really taken this idea and run with it. Yeah, I, I think there's two kinds of growth. One is earned, and it's uh, based on this uh, flywheel I described of customers coming back for more and referring their friends. Um, and the bot growth are the, the new customers that are acquired through marketing and sales, uh, promotional gimmicks, uh, investments, you know, substantial costs where you go out and try and pitch a customer to, to give you a try. That's old-fashioned marketing and... Uh, it's incredibly expensive. And so bought customers tend to be lower quality. They're more expensive. Their economics are terrible. Earned earned customers are the ones that are are coming in for the right reasons and have a much higher likelihood of turning into a long-term asset. So the reason I, there was an Harvard Business Review article I wrote with with my colleagues on this a year ago and winning on purpose is full of earned growth because it's both the philosophy of the center of a good business is making customers' lives better, 
when, when a business accomplishes that goal, those customers feel the love. They come back for more and refer their friends. And that growth that's generated by that flywheel is really the only way to grow sustainably and profitably. And so I think separating out earned growth and understanding the underlying microeconomics is vital because today businesses are wasting enormous resources on uh, acquiring customers, buying customers, and, and destroying value for the entire enterprise. Uh, you know, investors, if they saw the true economics, would make companies stop spending so much on SG&A and, uh, and, and reinvest that in ways to delight existing customers and, um, and inspire this flywheel to spin faster. That's so true. And we know how much brands are struggling with one-off transactional relationships with their customers where they come in for the best deal and then will typically leave as soon as they find a better one. And, and to your point, those brands who are truly striving to make their customers' lives better are the ones that are going to build far more meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Yeah. And com- you know, companies may read those words, but they don't get it yet. Um, you look at businesses like Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Costco, these are not high-priced companies. They're very competitive prices. Um, they're just consistently good. They don't have to have some teaser rate or some trick to get you in the door. And because they are getting this flywheel to be the, the generator of growth, they can pass on that superior economic advantage to their customers and to their employees. So they invest more in employees. They tend to compensate them more highly. The traditional accounting mind would say, "Well, that makes you uh, price uncompetitive." No, <laughs> it's it's when you when you when your customers can't trust you to always give you a good deal, a good value that's consistent. That's when you have to then resort to these crazy pricing tactics where lost leaders <clears throat> and uh, advertising that uh, that never really pays back. There was a great part in the book where you spoke about a time where you invested heavily in those businesses on the New York Stock Exchange with a high NPS score, i.e. those ones whose customers loved them so much that they would recommend them to a friend. I'd love you to share that story with us because I think it will surprise many of our listeners the extent to which that move paid off. Yeah, I have a, a strong bias with my long history at Bain & Company. I think Bain is the largest of the consulting top consulting firms that focuses on private equity and, and, and people who really have their money at stake. And the reason that our philosophy fits so nicely in that sector is, is we've always had a focus on real economic results. Um, that means only investing in, in companies that, you, uh, that are adopting the ideas that you think are fundamental or the, or the processes or tools. So in the case of loyalty, I have been measuring who has the highest loyalty with, with, with my Bain colleagues, who has the highest retention rate, and then more recently, who has the highest net promoter score across an industry using comparable apples-to-apples measurement techniques. And, and in launching the Winning on Purpose book, I, I, had, I revealed my personal investment strategy, which is I invest in companies who have the highest NPS in their sector. And that portfolio beat the, uh, the median return in North American public companies by five times, you know, 500%. Un- unbelievable. No one would trust that unless it was from somebody famous like Warren Buffett. But frankly, Buffett has never re- gotten that kind of return either. Um, this is, fifth, you know, that it's, it's at the top 95th percentile of all private equity funds over the last 15 years. 
So I then compared that to what about companies that accountants think are great? And I looked at uh, the Good to Great organization, the, the book by Jim Collins, Good to Great, looked at companies he thought were great. And um, I looked at the returns of those accounting great companies over the 10 years after that book was published. They underperformed the North American median uh, by less, you know, they 0.4 times the median. So the accounting view makes you think companies are great because they're boosting their accounting results. Often that can be just digging, you know, it's, it's, it's more, more effectively pulling money out of your customer's wallet, which they eventually notice. And, and, and actually of the 11 companies that are the, uh, the, the basis of good to great, a handful are bankrupt or in jail for, for, you know, abusing customer trust there. It's really a dog's breakfast. You look at those companies that I, I, I highlighted in the ultimate question 2.0, as number one in their uh, in their industry in terms of NPS, those are the companies I invested in. They are still outstanding organizations where you'd be proud to work or have your kids work or uh, if you, or buy from. And and so I think it's 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 it in thinking about the greatness of an organization and where I would want to work. You really want to find the place that is dedicated to putting you, the employee, in a position where you can delight your customers. Treat them the way you'd want your dear mother or your child treated, and, and which is inspiring. And, and 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 by getting that flywheel going of them coming back for more and bringing their friends, uh, you actually have better career opportunities and better compensation opportunities. That actually reminds me of another part of the book where you talk about toxic revenue, which I think has, has become probably so commonplace now in business. For example, with airlines, you get charged for you know changing your dates or changing your um, changing your flight details. Um, and what you were talking about there, the fact that businesses are obviously getting almost kind of propping themselves up with those with those profits. Um, I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. This idea of, of toxic revenue and and again the downside of businesses doing that long term because I guess they see the short term um, results from that, but long term, how is that damaging brands? Well, it's both short term. But it's also exacerbated by the, the silo measurement and accountability that most organizations have. So if I can show to my bosses that, gosh, if, if I'm an airline and I can charge $200 for a change fee, even if it only costs $10 to implement it, I can make our revenues go up and I can track that revenue. Now, of course, I'm not tracking what those customers are doing over the long haul and what share of their business I'm earning in each city pair, because that's hard to measure. That's not something that automatically shows up on the accounting statement. I, I saw recently in the Wall Street Journal, uh, airlines are now contemplating charging $25 to print out your, uh, your boarding pass. Now, <clears throat> in some ways, that's a natural evolution. Sure, printing out your boarding pass is completely unnecessary. It's a waste of paper. It's a waste of bureaucratic, you know, everyone's time. But I'm betting the true cost is more like $2 or $3. It's fine to pass on that cost to a customer for costs they're incurring to the system. You know, community members have to contribute to the community. Um, but then to say, oh, but it's a real profit opportunity. I can charge $25 just like I do with change fees or the rental cars charge three or 400% markups on refilling your gas tank. This has become... 
I call it bad profits, and it's very addictive. There are industries where bad profits account for the majority of profits earned by that industry, and all it does is make customers hate you and not trust you, and it makes it a horrible place to work because you're having to explain away these inherently evil policies and 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 you know they're legal they're probably legal because these companies have been lobbying lawmakers to keep them legal but they're not moral they're not ethical and they surely don't inspire customers to come back for more and bring their friends and it doesn't make it a great place to work for uh, employees i think it's fair to say the world would be a better place if businesses started to eradicate these bad profits from existence So we've covered some amazing ground today. Just to wrap things up, Fred, this is probably, for most people listening, a very new concept and a new way of thinking. I'd love to discuss some of the first steps that businesses can take to start increasing and measuring their own earned growth so ultimately becomes part of the fabric of their business. I think first businesses, leaders, have to come to the point of view that it is vital to measure the earned growth flywheel, to, to know not just the health of the business, but how to test out various <clears throat> decisions and strategies, you, you have to, to see how it affects that flywheel. And, and earned growth is just literally the economic, microeconomics behind uh, the, uh, the back for more and bring your friends. The biggest component for most businesses is net revenue retention rate. Of all your revenue coming up you know, in this period, how much of it came from customers who were with you last period? Um, so how much? So that's the growth of your existing book of business minus the shrinking customers and defections. Just report net revenue retention on a constant basis, and you'll see much of the effect. The cutting edge, though, is keeping track of all your new customers coming in the door. How many are coming primarily as a result of referral and recommendation from your existing customers? That flow. Is, is why I've, I've begun working with Mention Me, um, a tech platform that, that keeps track of who refers whom and not just gives the referral, but when the customer actually buys as a result of the referral, how much do they buy? And, and then that customer does that. Is there a chain reaction of them referring other customers? We need to make this referral chain reaction visible and illuminate it and begin to understand it so much better than we do today. And uh, the, the reason is because a recommendation is the purest signal that you're on the right track. I'll come back and buy more from a software company because I sort of made the choice and now I'm stuck with it or, or even a bank. <clears throat> but, you know, it's hard to shift your account. It takes a lot of work. So they really have to irritate you. On the other hand, I don't recommend someone unless they are really good. And I expect they will continue to be good. So in that ways, it's just vital for more businesses to get a clearer picture of who's coming in on a referral, why, who referred them, what happened that inspired that referral, so that that, yes, you measure it, but you bring it back into the daily, the processes running the business, so you can make a much much smarter set of decisions and keep the business focused uh, and, and toward that true north of making customers so happy they come back for more and bring their friends. So, you know, it's not rocket science. Um, the, the solutions are there. It's, you know, it's mentioned me exists. It's not just something I'd have in my head uh, as, as a good idea. Uh, that So it, there's really no excuse for a company who gets it. 
the options are there to, to do it right. Now, most companies don't believe making customers happy is their primary purpose. I think only 10% of leaders see that today. So another important step is we need a bigger group of leaders who get it, that the only way to sustainably grow a business that will attract good employees and inspire them is to, 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 to steer that ship toward this, uh, this, uh, the only true star, which is uh, referrals. What a great way to finish. Fred, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and speak to you again soon. My pleasure too. Thank you. You've been listening to the Business of Customer Love podcast hosted by Mention Me. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to join us next time where we'll be speaking to some more amazing guests about how you can harness the power of customer love. See you again soon.